Ephesians chapter 3 this morning. So continue through our series on the book of Ephesians, looking at what Paul refers to as the mystery of the gospel. Pray with me as we open God's word. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would indeed send your spirit to reveal to us a deep and profound understanding things that have been hidden for believers of preceding generations. And Lord, not only would you bring understanding and insight to us, but Lord, would you use them to bring transformation in our lives, in our church, in our families, and in our community. We pray for the working of your spirit to this end. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to introduce you to a term and a concept this morning that is something that I've been thinking about for the last while. It's a term that was identified by several, uh, by several non-Christian writers and several authors and scholars, and they were reflecting upon the rise of secularism inside the United States and the decline of traditional churches and the church both in the United States and also in Europe. And they've given some very profound insights into the state of the spiritual condition of Americans and indeed Western society. And this concept, they identify it, and they call it this. They call it expressive individualism. That expressive individualism is the dominant moral framework. It is the dominant narrative that people use to interpret their lives. It's a dominant value system that is present throughout our culture and to varying degrees and to a much greater degree that I would like present within my own life and present within yours as well. One of the authors writes that according to this way of thinking, consider this, according to this way of thinking, the goal of life is to discover your unique self. The goal of life is to discover your unique self, no matter what others may say or do to challenge your freedom of personality. The narrative arc of your life is finding your personal route to happiness by following your heart by expressing your true self, and then fighting whoever would oppose you, your society, your family, your past, or your church. This is one of the dominant narratives of our times, and it shows up in movies, it shows up in music, and increasingly on the platform of popular preachers and teachers, Christian books by both authors, speakers, musicians, male and female. And there are many aspects of the gospel, the biblical truth, that contradict and correct and counter this view and this storyline of expressive individualism. And we're going to look at one of those today, which, is, which Paul refers to as the mystery of the gospel, something that is profoundly different and completely other than the way most people, indeed most Christians, dare I say most of us, Think about the Christian faith and think about our Christian life. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 3, he says this, For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you've heard of the, of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. 
Here it is. What is this mystery? This mystery is that Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. As we dive into this, we're going to look this morning first at the revelation of this mystery, secondly, the nature of this mystery, and finally, the cost of the mystery of the gospel. To begin with, let's take a look at the revelation of this mystery. Paul says that he has been given insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and the prophets by the Spirit. Paul is identifying and recognizing that the revelation that God has given mankind, recorded in Scripture, is progressive. That God acts in historical events, and over the course of time, recorded in Scripture, his revelation, his, his teaching, and his revelation about himself and his redemptive works has been increasingly unfolded until it has climaxed in Jesus Christ and until he returns again. The Bible is not a self-help book. It is not an encyclopedia that you turn to when you have a question on a particular topic. But it is the record of God's unfolding revelation. And so Paul identifies that through him, through the holy apostles and the prophets by the Spirit, that the mystery of Christ has now been revealed in a way that it was not beforehand, in a way that it has not been to previous generations. Well, what aspects of this mystery was known through previous generations? Let's do a quick summary of the Old Testament and biblical history. Genesis chapter 1, God creates the world, creates mankind, creates us a sinless world where people were to have a relationship with him. God gave them the charge to be fruitful, to multiply, to fill the earth, and to subdue it to cultivate the earth, that the earth would flourish, that people would be in a right relationship with God. However, Adam and Eve, as representatives of mankind, turned away from God, and instead of centering their lives on God, centered it on themselves, sinned against God and against one another, and thereby bringing brokenness, sin, corruption, misery, evil, and wickedness throughout the entire created order and throughout our lives and in every aspect of our lives. The story of Genesis continues talking about the spread of wickedness and evil on the earth. That would include the story of Noah and the flood, the story of the Tower of Babel. And the question that a Bible reader should be asking at this point is how on earth are going to be, be, people be restored to a right relationship with God if wickedness continues to spread and wickedness continues to expand? Come Genesis chapter 12. And God calls a man by the name of Abram to leave his father's house and go to the land that he will show him. And God gives Abraham this promise that sets up the rest of the Bible. He says, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great. Now, why is God doing these things? So that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, God's promise to Abraham and to his descendants is that he is going to bless them tremendously, but not for themselves. He is going to bless them so that through them, they would be a blessing to all of the families of the earth. Now, the story of the rest of the Old Testament is basically that the people of God remembered the promise of God's blessing, but they forgot the purpose why God gave them that blessing. 
They remember that God was going to do these things for them, but they forgot. They, they came, to, came to think that God was doing those things for themselves in and of themselves, not to be a blessing to others, principally. But through the rest of the, New Test- the Old Testament, God continues to call the people of Israel, the people of God, back to the purpose that God established for them. So you have things in the Old Testament like the book of Jonah, where Jonah, a prophet of God who was a Jew, was called to go to the Assyrians and to call to bring about their repentance. And the book of Jonah confronts not only Jonah's racism and hatred for the Assyrians, but also by being in the Hebrew Scriptures, confronts that of the people of Israel, that their very purpose was so that all the nations would come to know God. So the book of Jonah is about. Many other passages of Scripture, but you take another one such as Ezra, which is after the people of Israel have been put into exile, God's judgment has come upon them, they've been sent away, God brings them back together. And you see Ezra 21 where it says, the Israelites who had returned from the exile, the reformation of the nation of Israel, together with all who had separated themselves from the unclean practices of their Gentile neighbors in order to seek the Lord, the God of Israel. The nation of Israel is being reestablished, and who was brought back to do it? One, the Jews, but two, the Gentiles, who separated themselves from the unclean practices, in particular, devoted themselves to the worship of God and their trust in the covenant God of the Bible. Now, stay with me as we're working through this. Now, sometimes people would object to this idea that God's purpose throughout Scripture was that the nations and people of every tongue, tribe, and race would be reconciled to him. And they object and they say, well, what about the many instructions, and they're there, which state that Jews were not supposed to marry or intermingle with other races and with other nations. And the issue with this always is religious purity, not ethnic purity, is that the people would not forsake their worship of God and their faith in God, but rather that the people of God would be a light to the nations, and when they were a light to the nation and other nations were drawn in, that they would be united into the people of God. So you have some very profound examples of this, namely almost every leader of Israel who married a foreigner, for one. You have a book of the Old Testament called the book of Ruth which is about a Moabitess woman, a tribe of a group of people that the Israelites were prohibited from marrying and prohibited from interacting with. But Ruth devotes herself to the covenant God, to the God of Abraham, and she is brought in. And not only is she brought in, but the New Testament emphasizes that Ruth, the Moabitess, is an ancestor of Jesus Christ. And then you have someone like Rahab, the prostitute. Rahab, who um, was a prostitute in the land of Canaan as the people of Israel were coming to conquer the promised land, she was, she was preserved and actually she was married into the nation of Israel. Why? Because she had forsaken her people, the Canaanites, and had devoted herself to the God of Israel. And the New Testament also emphasizes that Rahab also was a descendant of Jesus Christ. You have Moses who is intermarried. But again, my point in highlighting these things is that the issue is always religious purity, not ethnic purity. When it comes to Jesus, Jesus also talks about how his purpose is to bring about the inclusion of the Gentiles. And he gives the great commission that 
um, that Jesus' followers are to go to all the earth and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. That all the nations are to come back in. All the nations are to be drawn into the worship of God. That, what I've described so far, is what had been previously revealed about the mystery. Paul says that through the apostles and prophets, there is something that is profoundly new and profoundly distinct, and it has huge implications. And what has now been revealed is this. Here is the mystery of the gospel. Verse 6. This mystery is that Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. We're going to dive into this more deeply when we look at the nature of the mystery. But let me just state clearly what is new that Paul is revealing here. John Stott writes, What neither the Old Testament nor Jesus revealed was the radical nature of God's plan, which was that the theocracy, that the Jewish nation under God's rule, would be terminated and replaced by a new international community, which is the church. That this church would be the body of Christ, organically united to him. And that Jews and Gentiles would be incorporated into Christ and his church on equal terms without any distinction. It was this complete union of Jews, Gentiles, and Christ which was radically new and which God revealed to Paul overcoming his entrenched Jewish prejudice. The mystery of the gospel is that through faith in Jesus Christ, I am united to Christ, and mysteriously, I am united to everyone else who is also in Christ Jesus. Just as much as the mystery of the gospel is that I am united to Jesus, that I am united in his death, his resurrection, and his ascension at the right hand of God, just as mysteriously, I am united to one another and to brothers and sisters in Christ. Just as profound. I would challenge you that this week, every time that you think about your Christian faith, every time you think about what Christ has done for you, his forgiveness, his righteousness, his blessing, his love for you, every time you think about all these mysterious things about what Christ has done for you, that you would think about something else, that you would use those as a springboard to think about the mystery that, yes, you are united to God through Christ, but also the mystery that thereby you are united to one another. This profound mystery that had not been made known previously. Now let's dive into this a little bit more when we look at the nature of this mystery. This mystery is that Jews and Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Jesus comes as both the Lord of my soul and the Lord of the nations. The Jews would object to this. Notice the racial tension. The Jews would object to this because somehow now God is allowing covenant entry to unclean people and unclean races. The Gentiles, the people of other races, would object to this idea because it would require their entry into the covenant of the Jews who they viewed as an arrogant and hated people. I think the Apostle Paul understood the difficulty of how profound the statement that he is making of granting equal access to God and in God through Christ Jesus. And in fact, he 
triple emphasizes it in this passage. In the writing of Scripture, when a writer of Scripture wanted to emphasize something, they didn't have exclamation points, they didn't have italics, they didn't have underlined the way that we do. When they wanted to emphasize something, they would double the word. So you see Jesus saying things like this, truly, truly, I say to you. It means pay attention. It's not because it wasn't true the first time, but truly, truly, it's time for you to, to, to pay attention. Or the, the psalmist writer and some of the apostles write, amen and amen. They're emphasizing what's being said. And if the writers of Scripture want to shout something, if they want to make a thunderous clap for people to pay attention, what they do is they don't double it, they triple it. So, you see passages of Scriptures that say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Was it not that He wasn't holy the first time? No, it's the emphasis. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The people fall before the throne, and they say this again and again and again to emphasize it. And here, Paul is shouting, giving this thunderous clap that shakes the foundation of any aspect of any one of our prejudices, and it did for the Apostle Paul. It's not very clear in the, in the ESV's translation of this passage, but there is a preposition that is stuck onto each one of these concepts in the original Greek. The NIS does a better job of translating it as well as the 1984 version of the NIV Bible. They state this, and they get the sense of it. Here is the mystery, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. If you're reading this in Greek, it would say, fellow heirs, fellow members, fellow partakers. It would be very clear that the emphasis is on the union that has now occurred. The NIV picks it up similarly by saying that we are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, sharers together in the promise of Christ Jesus, emphasizing this unity that has now occurred, this mysterious union of Jews and Gentiles of all the nations together in Christ Jesus. And as he builds to this statement, we are in chapter 3, verse 6. This letter would have been read in one sitting to the church in Ephesus. So by making this statement, Paul is building to a climax the things that he has taught in chapters 1 and 2. He is saying that we are heirs together, fellow heirs. A profound statement that he already described in Ephesians chapter 1 and we examined several weeks ago. That in Christ Jesus, Christ is our guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Paul prays that we would know the glorious inheritance in his saints. That in Christ Jesus, we are heirs together, co-heirs, that there is a, that in Christ Jesus, there are no second-class citizens, you are co-heirs with Christ, that you receive an equal portion of the promise, an equal portion of the inheritance that was promised to Abraham as a Gentile. His second one, and we're going to work through some of the implications of this in a minute. The second one is that we are heirs together and also members together of one body which he talked about in Ephesians chapter 2. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, us being Jews and Gentiles, that he has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, that he might reconcile us, the nations of this world, Jews and Gentile, both, that he would reconcile both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing hostility. You are fellow heirs, 
fellow members together of one body, which Paul says is the church, that in this body that you have a valued function, that you are interdependent, and just as the church, the people of God, are united to their head, Jesus Christ, so too you are mysteriously, intricately, and interdependently united to one another, members together of one body. The divisions are gone, and not only the divisions are gone, but you need one another. Thirdly, sharers together of the promise, which he said in chapter 2 also. He says, remember that you Gentiles were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Paul then goes on to say that the opposite is now true, that you are sharers together of the promises of God. Not only the Jews, but the things that had made the Jews distinct, the promises of God entrusted to them are now entrusted to those who are Gentiles. Well, how is this possible? Paul says it's possible in Christ Jesus through the gospel. That by being united to Christ, you are thereby united to one another. In Christ Jesus, there is true reconciliation, true equality, true brotherhood as one family joined together. And this occurs in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Now, if you have been part of a Bible-believing church at some point in your life, many of us, many people here are a part of this church that was not their heritage. But for those of you who were, this would be the time that you could expect to have an altar call. Because we would say that these things have happened in Christ Jesus through the gospel. It begs the question, what is the gospel? And there would be a statement that goes somewhere along the lines of this, that says, the gospel is the good news. That I am saved from my sins through faith in Jesus Christ. And that is absolutely true. And the gospel is no less than that. And it's a truth and reality that each one of us needs to come to terms with. That that apart from God, apart from God through Christ Jesus, we are hopeless that we have done things and said things that, all, that deserve the wrath of God and breaking God's law, that we stand before him guilty under God's wrath, and through Christ Jesus, he is our substitute who takes our place so that our sins would be forgiven, our guilt and shame removed, and the beauty and righteousness of Christ bestowed upon us. And the gospel is not less than that. But let me delineate the gospel of Jesus Christ from what has become a Christianized version of expressive individualism. And listen how this dominant moral narrative and this dominant storyline of our culture that animates people these days and us to a much greater degree than we want to admit or acknowledge, listen to how this has infused the modern expression of what the gospel of Christ is. The religious form of expressive individualism imagines the believer wrestling against the bondage of their past or the expectation of their parents or the legalistic regulations of their church. God's rescue frees us from all these chains and sets us on a journey to discover our true essence, which we then offer up as a gift to God in the world, 
Our goal is to become all that God has created us to be. Sounds pretty good, doesn't it? And anything that gets in the way of this journey must be an evil barrier, whether that is our past, whether that is our self, whether that is our family, whether that is our church, whether that is our school, whether that is any sort of structure or institution that has gone before. Anything that gets in the way of this journey must be an evil barrier overcome only through personal faith and reliance of Jesus, on Jesus Christ. Now, there are certainly some elements of Christian truth here, because like any good counterfeit gospel, it mimics the truth at very key points. So yes, God wants us to be free from the sins and shame of our past. Yes, God wants to rescue us from paralyzing guilt. Yes, God wants us to overcome the barriers that keep us from pursuing radical obedience to his command as we come to know him and his word with increasing fervor. And yes, God wants us to lean into becoming all that he has created to be, conformed to the image of his Son. And yes, God wants us to be happy, not just joyful or blessed or holy. But note how the gospel of freedom redefines Christian teaching at key points. Sin is failing to reach your potential. Shame is a subjective feeling you bring upon yourself and you must set aside. Not a state that results from an objective sin against a holy God. Guilt is what happens when you fail to accept yourself and fail to love yourself or to sense your own worthiness of happiness. And the barriers that stand in your way of pursuing your dreams must all come down no matter what they are because the number one goal of human life is for you to express who you are as an individual regardless of anything that stands in the way. And people view Christianity and say the role of Christianity is to help me overcome those barriers in my life to be who I truly am meant to be so that I can have the full freedom and expression of who I truly need to be free and express. This is not Christianity. It is a Christianized form of expressive individualism that you can find in just about any self-help book, an inspirational feel-good message that makes perfect sense in Western cultures but leaves traditional societies, many of them Eastern, aghast at its sanction of selfishness. And I would also just say positively, one of the things that I've appreciated from our brothers and sisters in our church who grew up in other cultures and in other countries has been just the very small way that they've begun to help me to see my own Christianized version of this in my life that they can see so clearly as a compromise of the gospel. And so this idea of expression individualism is widely present. It is the driving sub-argument of most of our politics. It is certainly the driving subtext of political libertarianism and political liberalism. And and it is also the driving subtext of when our culture talks about the issue of racial reconciliation from both those who are for it and those who are opposed to it. For those who are for racial reconciliation using this narrative of individual self-expression, 
You need to pursue racial reconciliation because you have to remove anything that would interfere with anyone's self-fulfillment or anyone, any individual person's self-actualization. And so if there are systemic individuals, if there are societal issues that are blocking the individual fulfillment of a person, those things should be removed because I don't want that for me and how could I want that for somebody else? And we need to, and the society is arguing, we need to pursue racial reconciliation because you are blocking, by not doing so, you are not allowing people to be the free, fully express their own individual self. And those who are opposed to issues of racial reconciliation do so from the same line of logic. Because they look at it, and might not say this clearly, but are certainly very concerned that the advancement of someone else, particularly someone of a lower socioeconomic background, that the advancement of them through what is talked about in the political arenas for racial reconciliation necessarily means the minimizing of me. And why should I sacrifice? What about my own self-fulfillment? What about my own quest? What about my own things that I'm trying trying to accomplish? And your quest to create a greater advocacy for a certain people group or a certain sect of our society, is going to come and inhibit my own individual self-expression. And so these two sides in our political realm are arguing against one another over the same core value and the same core belief that the highest goal in the life is one owns individual self-fulfillment and self-expression. How very different the gospel of Jesus Christ is than the counterfeit gospel of Expressive individualism. For the gospel says that through faith in Jesus Christ, you are united to Jesus Christ and also mysteriously united to one another. That yes, there is a body. There is a kingdom. There is a family. There is a household that Jesus Christ has redeemed and you are a part of it through faith in Jesus Christ. You are a part of a story that is so much more grand than your own little existence and your own individual quest for meaning. There is something much bigger that is going on than you, and it is the redemption of God's people to the ends of the earth. So what does that mean as a person who is a part of this greater body? It means that we are called to pursue unity Pursue love, pursue reconciliation, because you and the nations of this world are being reconciled in Christ Jesus and to one another. Be who you are. Be who you are. Be the body of Christ. Be the kingdom of God. Be the church. Because just as mysteriously have your sins been forgiven, have you also been bound and united to one another? Obviously, a whole lot more can be drawn out from this. But let us in this passage examine the cost of living it out. For if you live out the gospel, if you live out the mystery of the gospel, it will cost you. It will cost you money. It will cost you your relationships, some of your relationships. It will cost you your reputation. For some of you, it will cost you your job. And for some Christians, it costs them their life. It should not be a surprise. I mean, baseball players should not be surprised if they get hit by a baseball, right? Soldiers shouldn't be surprised if somebody shoots at them. Christians should not be surprised if there is suffering in their life Of course, you never seek it out, you never pursue it, but they shouldn't be surprised because when it comes, because Scripture is abundantly clear that if you live for Christ and you're challenging the values and idols of this world, there will be conflict and it will be brought about upon you. And so Paul describes 
in, this, in, in sharing this mystery of the gospel, here he gives a glimpse into his own cost in his own life. He says, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. Why am I a prisoner? Is because I have been bringing the message that you Gentiles have equal standing before God, and that's not so popular, and that's why I'm in prison. You know, sometimes people think, why was Paul imprisoned? And the common answer is, Paul was imprisoned because he was preaching the gospel. Well, that's not what the Bible says. In fact, that's not what Paul says. In fact, the reason why Paul was in prison, you get the clear example, the statement of it in Acts chapter 21, verses 28 through 29. The Jewish person who was rousing up the crown says, men of Israel, help. This is the man, Paul, who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law in this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesians, who was a member of the church to which this letter was written, For they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesians with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Do you see the radical nature of what has happened? It was incomprehensible that a Jew would actually have friendship with an Ephesian. It was mind-boggling. How on earth is this possible? And there were Jews who heard Paul's teaching that, Paul, that Jesus Christ had torn down the dividing wall of hostility, that Greeks have equal access to the throne of grace as Jews do. And so what happens, they make this accusation that they brought Trophimus into the, that Paul brought Trophimus into the temple. Why? Because they just simply saw the two of them together. There was no indication that Paul ever did so. And so when Paul's reflecting upon his own imprisonment at the end of the book of Ephesians, here is why he says he is imprisoned. Pray also for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. What is the mystery? Well, he already told us that Jews and Gentiles are of equal standing before God, fellow heirs, members of the same bodies, partakers of the same covenant. Pray for me that my, my mouth, that I may pro- opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. That I may declare it boldly. What is the it? It's the mystery of the gospel. Why? As I ought to speak, he says, why is he praying for that? Because he knows that when he is presenting that the gospel tears down all barriers and you have an equal inheritance before God, that it should profoundly transform your relationship and your value system and your social networks, people don't like that. And Paul says it's not for proclaiming the gospel that he's in prison, but for proclaiming the mystery of the gospel, not a self-expressive individualistic gospel that's so common today. But he is in prison for proclaiming a gospel that says Christians, through faith in Jesus Christ, are united to God and also, just as mysteriously, united to one another. It is only the blood of Jesus which has the power to turn enemies into friends. It is only the work of Christ on the cross and his resurrection from the grave that turns orphans into children of God, who are co-heirs with Jesus Christ, who turns aliens into citizens. It's only the gospel of Jesus Christ that has the power to tear down hostility, to turn hatred into forgiveness, guilt into conviction, And to bring all of God's children, no matter which genetic lineage they are from, but to bring all of God's children 
under one Lord into one household because they share one Father. And they do so through one faith, through one baptism by the blood of one man who through faith in Christ has united them all into one household, one kingdom, one family, one body with people of every tongue, every tribe, every nation united together with one voice in one body to worship Jesus Christ who alone has the power to reconcile. The mystery of the gospel is that Jews and Gentiles, different people, different races, can be fully reconciled to God through Jesus Christ and also to one another. So our calling for us is very clear that the implications are profound. It's a calling for us to embrace the gospel, to embrace the whole gospel, not just an individualistic gospel, to embrace and believe the whole gospel and live the mystery of the gospel and live it boldly. Let's pray. Father, we need your Spirit to understand these things. We need your Spirit to bring insight, to expose our own hearts and our own souls, to expose our own patterns. We need your Spirit to help us understand our rampant, expressive individualism that has soaked so deeply inside each one of us. And it is a counterfeit that leaves people empty and promotes and creates hostility and conflict. For we need a redeemer, not just to free us to be ourselves, but we need a redeemer from ourselves. One who would reconcile us to a just and holy God before whom we have sinned and broken his law. We need a Redeemer who will take enemies of God and adopt them as sons. And Lord, thank you that you have done so in Christ Jesus. And so, Lord, as we contemplate the mystery of who we are in you, Lord, would you help us just as much? Lord, would you help us even the scale of our contemplation and help us to comprehend the mystery that we are united to one another in Christ Jesus. We pray for your glory, for the redemption of your people, and the honor of your name. Amen. Thank God for his amazing grace as we...